My name is John Stead. I am one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of serving with student ministries and with the young adults ministry, uh, which, by the way, we had a great time, the nine o'clock hour, all the uh, young adults gathered and we were studying the importance of sound doctrine. Also, uh, with student ministries, we just got back from a retreat up to the mountains where we focused a lot of time and energy and prayer on the students of Tri-City Bible Church. And it was a great, great time of fellowship and was very sweet. Uh, Today, John Rourke, our pastor, is not here today. I am here. He's not. He is preaching at uh, another church in Palm Desert for a friend of his. I don't know who that friend is, and I don't know what church it is, but I just trust, uh, I know he will be preaching the Word of God with all his strength and might by the power of the Spirit, and that's what I long to do today. Before I get started, we are going to tackle Luke chapter 5, the very text that Andrew read to you, the healing of the paralytic. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about sports. Uh, I am a drummer and I enjoy music, and so I have a whole interest in music, but I also love sports. And I went to the Masters University, but my father got his doctorate at USC, the University of Southern California. And so I was going to Rose Bowl games uh, as a, I was at the national championship game in 1972 as a two-year-old when we beat Ohio State. Um, I'm reminded often by my dad that that USC has won more Rose Bowl games than UCLA's even been to, except that UCLA plays there because that's their home stadium. So, But nevertheless, I was very, uh, let's say, committed or overly committed to watching USC football. And it almost became, at times, idolatrous. Is that the right word? Did I turn on my mic? Oh, I didn't. Mago, I'm sorry. I turned it on. Okay. so. Nevertheless, when a team starts losing, I found out that's a really good way to wean yourself off that form of idolatry. And so I don't even care about uh, college football that much anymore, especially after this past year. But I really do enjoy watching professional football because I don't have a team. I just pick one. And it's usually the one that's like 11 and 0 already throughout. And I just jump on that bandwagon and uh, While you watch football, occasionally there will be commercials that are really creative and very funny. And there was a commercial um, series, if you will, over the last couple years. And this particular beverage, I won't highlight the beverage, but their ad campaign was really, I thought, very creative and very entertaining. And the premise was the person that drank this beverage was the most interesting man in the universe. And they had these great one-liners about him that I I felt were really funny, so I'll share them with you. He said this, he once, or this is what they said about him, he once ran a marathon because it was on his way. I love that. If opportunity knocks and he's not home, opportunity waits. My wife would appreciate this one. Mosquitoes refuse to bite him out of respect. His two cents is worth $37 in change. Let me tell you, I've been in meetings where I've shared my two cents, and then John Rourke shared his two cents, and it seemed like his two cents was worth a lot more than my two cents when I share. So 
He can relate to this. I love this one. Once a rattlesnake bit him, not John Rourke, but this character. Once a rattlesnake bit him, and after five days of excruciating pain, the snake finally died. He's won the Lifetime Achievement Award twice, and sharks have a week dedicated to him. Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. Now that's really funny and entertaining, but it's all make-believe. It's not true, it was made up. I'd like to tell you today, there is a man, the God-man, who is the most amazing man to ever walk this earth. He was a man who lived an absolutely perfect life and never sinned once. He was born of a virgin, yet he was not created. He was from a poor family, yet he created the universe. He spoke it into existence and he holds all things together by the word of his power. He had no formal religious training, yet he preached the Bible with authority to where religious leaders could not understand where this power came from. As a carpenter, before he entered into his three years of ministry, undoubtedly he cut his finger. But after he entered into ministry at age 30, he could heal the sick he could open blind eyes. He could heal the ones with leprosy. He could cast out demons and he could raise the dead. He preached about sin, yet he spent time with and fellowship with sinners who were despised and hated like you and I. This man, Jesus Christ, hated evil and cast Satan out of heaven, yet he loved his enemies, you and I. He proclaimed more about hell than he did about heaven and warned sinners of hell and then made proclamation in hell during that three-day period when he was buried after he died on the cross. My question to you today is, do you know this most amazing man, the God-man Jesus Christ? We have a snapshot early on in his ministry that is actually more than a snapshot is captured by Luke, it's captured by Matthew, and it's captured by Mark. It's such a profound event uh, that all three evangelists cover this healing of the paralytic. It's not just about the healing of the paralytic that is so profound. It's what was being proclaimed by him to the Pharisees and to all his hearers. And that was that he was claiming to be God and then demonstrated his deity by healing the paralytic. And so I wanna look at this story, uh, this true story in Luke chapter five. So please turn there if you haven't already, and we'll start in verse 17. The purpose and the theme of why Matthew, Mark, and particularly Luke cover this healing of the paralytic is simply this. They are proclaiming that Jesus has the power to forgive sins because he is God, and that is proven by the healing of the paralytic. Jesus has the power to forgive sins because he's God, and that is proven by the healing of the paralytic. In verse 24, Jesus says this, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he then tells the paralytic to take up his pallet and walk. And that is the purpose statement of this section. 
It's very important that you understand today that Jesus Christ is not just a good man. He's not just a prophet. He's actually God who has the power to forgive our sins because he also has the power to heal. And he demonstrates that. Now, we need to understand the location of where this takes place. This interaction with Christ and the crowds and the Pharisees takes place at a house. And it's in the town of Capernaum, which is north of the, on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And many, many commentators believe that, that possibly Jesus was now living in Capernaum, possibly at Peter's house. Because we have uh, an interaction in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus heals the mother-in-law of Peter. So Peter was married. And I find it interesting that the mother-in-law is mentioned, but not Peter's wife. And I, that makes sense because the relationship of son-in-laws with mother-in-laws, it, it's very, very important and very good. And so that's highlighted there. But nevertheless, Jesus is probably staying with Peter. And this possibly could be Peter's house where this interaction takes place with the paralytic. Look at verse 17. And it came about one day that he was teaching. So Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry, probably in the first year of his ministry, and he is preaching all over Israel, and he's becoming famous, not just because of his preaching, but because he was healing the sick and, become, and, 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 and taking care of people who had ailments and raising the dead and so forth. And so he was becoming very, very popular. And look what else takes place here. Verse 17, and while he was teaching, there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So it says he was teaching. And here he's teaching with Pharisees from all over Israel that have come to this house to hear him. Now, what was he teaching? Well, Jesus Christ was proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He was proclaiming that I, the Son of Man, am the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. I am the great-grandson of David. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come to save Israel from their sins and the world from their sins. And so, therefore, he is preaching the kingdom of heaven. Also woven into that is the gospel. Though Jesus Christ has not died yet at this point on the cross, he's still proclaiming that salvation is through him. And it's very important that today you understand what the gospel is. The word gospel means good news. It is proclaiming an event that has taken place in history and it's a past tense event. What took place in history from our perspective is the fact that Jesus came and lived a perfect life for 33 years and then went to the cross and died on that cross and took upon himself the sin of all who would put their faith in him. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. It's very important that you also understand that that is very different. Putting your faith in the work that Jesus did and putting your faith in the gospel is very different than being religious. Religion is simply this, I do good works, therefore I'm accepted. I do good works and then God owes me. And if I do good works and if I do enough, then God owes me and I will get into heaven and be in his presence. 
That's religiosity. That is, you could take all the world's religions and dump them into that basket. But Christianity is very different. It is Christ did the work for me, therefore I am accepted. Because of the perfect life and his death and his resurrection and me putting faith in him, I am now accepted by the Father. Grace, it's a free gift through faith. And that's what Jesus was proclaiming, salvation through him. Let's look at these characters, the Pharisees. It says, and there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there. Now these gentlemen are obviously, to most of the, this is obvious, they are the religious leaders of the day. They were very religious. They knew the Bible well. They were teachers of the law. Many of them would have the whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible memorized, and they would teach it regularly, and they were very committed to the ceremonial laws of the day. They were also known to be separatists. That is, they did not uh, hang out with the commoners. They despised the sick and the poor, and they hated the well-known sinners, the unjust, the prostitutes, and so forth, people like Zacchaeus. They were politically powerful. The Sadducees ran the high courts, and then the uh, Pharisees ran all the local courts, so they had political power. They were extremely rich. God had ordained that the sacrificial system and the temple system would also support those leaders and the priests of the day, but these men abused that. They turned the temple into a, a den of thieves, the Bible says, and they were extremely rich because of it. Also, they were known for their pride. They were very selfish. They were know-it-alls. They had no humility. They looked down upon people. If you look at Luke 18, 9 through 14, you have Jesus giving a parable, and he's describing the difference between the, the, uh, the beggar and the Pharisee and how they pray. And the Pharisee says, oh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these commoners and these sinners, the unjust and, and, and the prostitutes, thank you that I, I, I give my alms and I faithfully attend and I serve you, God. And that's kind of their, the way that they carried themselves. They were religious fakes. They were hypocrites. They were whitewashed tombs. The outside looked great, but the inside they were far from the Lord. And these men at this point are starting to deepen their hatred for the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, when this event takes place. And we will see that moving forward. Now, with Jesus teaching in this house and the crowds pressing in, and because of his fame, it was impossible for people who were showing up maybe a little late to find a seat and to hear Jesus. And that's what takes place in this next scene. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present on him. I believe this is the Holy Spirit's power coming on Christ and empowering him, though he was fully God. And we'll see that later in the text. But here we see that he's doing these miracles in the power of the Spirit. And the power of the Lord was present with him to perform healing. And verse 18, and behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. This is the paralytic. This is a man who is severely paralyzed, possibly a quadriplegic. I'm glad I said that. That's hard to say. Say it really fast. You will stumble. He had no motor skills. He could not walk. 
He could not move his arms, his hands, his feet, or his legs. He was always lying down. Most, most likely he had bed sores. He was completely and totally helpless. Possibly he could not eat on his own, could not bathe on his own, could not go to the bathroom on his own. And he doesn't say a word in this text, so possibly he could have been a mute. We don't know exactly, but we do know that this man was very much near death, probably. This man was in really bad shape. His bones were brittle. His muscles were probably, well, much smaller than, and narrower than mine, if I could use myself as, as an example. This man was withered and weak and had no ability on his own to even stand before the Lord. He was helpless. Imagine what life would be like to be the paralytic. I'm reminded of the original Superman, Christopher Reeves. Do you remember him? Really well built. I think he was 6'3 like me. That's pretty good. Uh, much more stout and strong, much more muscular. He was a well-built man. But after he had fallen off of his horse in a competition, he broke his neck. And then we saw over time his body wither away. And it was really sad to see him as a shell of himself. And then he eventually died. But this man, he didn't have a wheelchair. He didn't have anything mechanical to help him. He was completely helpless. And one commentary says, commentator says this. This is a sad fact. Most believed in that day, most believed if they were sick, it was a consequence of their own sin or their parents' sin. And we know this to be true from John chapter 9, 1 through 2, where the disciples are walking with Jesus and they asked him as they passed a blind man who was born blind from birth. They said, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he should be born blind. That was common in that day. And Jesus said, neither. He was born blind that God might be glorified in his blindness being removed. Another commentator said this, this thought must have added immensely to this man's suffering. In his own mind and in the minds of most people who saw him, his paralysis was a vivid representation of his own sinfulness and the judgment of God. And that belief gave crippled and diseased people even more reason to shun the crowds. So not only was he in an awful state, but he was probably in an awful state in his spirit before God. He probably really truly believed that he was being judged and, and it was the judgment of God for his sins. And this man's paralysis is a, an amazing picture, if you will, of what the human heart really is like. That we as fallen human beings, before we receive salvation through Christ, we are dead to God. The Bible says we are spiritually paralyzed. We have no ability in and of ourselves to get right with the Lord. It says in Romans 5 verse 6, for while we were still helpless, that word there is powerless, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, you before God are completely helpless and powerless to fix your condition before God. You cannot do it on your own. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says this, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive 
together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Every one of us that is saved today, we were at one point dead to God. And it was him that made us alive. Not only were we dead, but the Bible says it's God that initiated the reconciliation between us and him. The Bible says we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God in that same Romans 5 passage. But it's God who initiated reconciliation by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to come down and to be the savior of all who would put their faith in him. You, if you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Like the paralytic, you have no ability to fix your condition. It's got to be God who does it for you. Let's continue on in this text here. Verse uh, 18, And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of Christ. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. This is an awesome part of the story. Let's focus on the paralytic's friends. Out the gate, I want to ask you a question. Do you have friends like this? And are you a friend like this? You should pray for friends like the paralytic's friends here. Look what they did. Now, this, some of this is assumed, but it will all make sense as you think about it like, like I am. They obviously cared for this man's physical needs. They carried him. They probably helped make his portable bed. Undoubtedly, they fed him. They washed him. They helped him go to the bathroom. They probably rotated him. And obviously, they spent a lot of time with him. We don't know if this man had a family, but if he did, these friends were probably helping the family care for the paralytic. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, a friend loves at all times. And clearly these men love the paralytic by caring for his physical needs. They were sacrificing for him. Are you a friend who loves at all times and do you sacrifice for your friends? A second observation, these friends were loyal and they had to be loyal because this man would probably die if he was left on his own. Proverbs 18:24, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. These men were desperately needed for the paralytic to survive, and they were loyal and faithful. Are you a loyal, faithful friend? Are your friends loyal and faithful to you? Like we learned last week, do you have friends in your life that will confront you of that which you already know to be true? And do you have friends that will teach you that which you do not know from the scriptures? Those are loyal and good friends. One commentator said this, this paralytic had some friends who were truly interested in him, who truly cared and loved him. It is a great thing to have a friend who is concerned about you. It's a great thing when some unsaved one has some believer interested in him. Oh, you unsaved student, you wretched sinner. It means so much to have friends who pray for you and have parents who pray for your soul. It means so much that your friends 
your parents love you enough to pray for you. The unsaved paralytic had awesome friends that prayed for him and brought him to Jesus. And that's my last point from this section. True friends do all that they can to bring their friends to Jesus. True friends do all that they can to bring their friends to Jesus. The Bible says that they were trying here. They were straining. They saw that that they weren't going to be able to get him through the front door, so they're going to have to be creative. They're going to have to come up with a plan, and there was teamwork here. And, And they showed great faith because they didn't lose heart. They just put their minds together and said, we got to go up there. Let's get up on the roof. There's nobody up there. We'll try to figure out exactly where Jesus is and, and we'll, we'll remove the clay tiles from the upper patio, the upper uh, story, and then we'll lower him down through. And they demonstrate great, great faith here. Now, I believe that these four were probably already saved. I believe that these guys had already come in contact with Jesus Christ. They had already heard him preach. They had seen him heal people. And so they had already put their faith in him. And I believe because the object of their faith, Jesus was so amazing, was so wonderful, was so great that they did all that they could to get their paralytic friend to Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 20, and seeing their faith, and seeing their faith. This is profound. Jesus sees their faith. Faith is an action. It's, it's demonstrated in how we live. And these guys demonstrated by not losing heart, but by becoming creative and figuring out a way to get to Jesus. It's not so much their faith as much as it is the object of their faith that's amazing. They have come in contact with Christ, and like a, a magnet, they were just drawn to get into his presence. And by the way, when all five are there, picture the four up, up above, looking down through the uh, ceiling, and you have the paralytic down before Jesus. It's interesting because it, it says there that because of their faith, he doesn't look to them and offer forgiveness to the four because of their faith. He offers forgiveness to the paralytic. And I think the point there is that those men are already saved and that the paralytic obviously had faith as well because he wanted to be there. He wanted his buddies to bring him and Jesus offers forgiveness. Now, what if these men had little faith? What if they were doubters? What if they were a lot like me who tends to be pessimistic? They would walk up on the crowd there and say, ah, there's too many people, man. He's heavy. We've been carrying him all over the place. I'm sweaty and tired. I don't like climbing. Are we serious? We're going to try to carry him up there? What if we drop him? We'll ruin the roof. What if by moving the tiles accidentally we'll cause dirt and maybe a piece of the tile to fall on Jesus' head? We don't want that to happen. Let's come back tomorrow. That's not their approach at all. They had tremendous faith. And I believe it's because they knew Christ, their eyes were on Christ, and they were drawn. The Bible says when the Son of Man is lifted up, when Christ in his gospel is proclaimed, it will draw men to himself. The Bible says when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And these men had to get their friend into the presence of the Lord. And my question to you today is this, from this section. Do you have a loved one 
that you have faithfully been praying for, faithfully been loving and sharing the gospel with, and you're discouraged. Go to these men and realize that faith never gives up. Faith never gives up. Get your eyes on the glory of Jesus Christ and that faith in him, not your work, but your eyes on Christ will help you through whatever situation you are struggling with. I have a good friend, Sean Farrell, from my old church, whose mom would bring his unsaved dad to Grace Community Church. And for 16 years, she brought her unsaved husband Sunday morning and Sunday night. And finally, after 16 years, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And Sean said, I never gave up hope. I continued to pray. As long as my dad was alive, I'm going to still pray. I'm going to believe that Jesus will save him. And he got saved. His mom never, ever gave up. And I think that's what my encouragement would be for you today. Never give up. If you have a loved one that is not saved, our Lord is wonderful. Our Lord is amazing. Our Lord is great. Get your eyes on him and then pray with great faith. May I encourage you to have persistent prayer for those who don't know Jesus. May you be persistent and strong in your faith in sharing the gospel with those that don't know Christ. And may you, uh, may you do that in love, always in love towards those who are unsaved. These men demonstrated great love towards the paralytic. Now, as we turn the corner here, if I have you walk out at this point, I have done an injustice to the scriptures. This is not about you guys mustering up better faith and being better Christians. I want to focus our hearts and minds on the greatest friend, the greater and better friend, the only friend who can forgive us of our sins and meet our greatest need, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I want to focus on this little section here, on the deity of Christ, on the priority of forgiveness over healing, the idea that Jesus is making a victory proclamation incrementally as he heads to the cross before the eyes of the Pharisees, whose father is the devil, and before the devil himself, Jesus is is, is on a victory march to the cross, saving people and healing people as he goes, all to proclaim that he's going to have victory over death. And I want to focus our hearts and energy on Jesus Christ on this last section. Notice the priority of forgiveness over healing. And I'll start in verse 19. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down through the tiles of the, on his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he says to the paralytic, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus doesn't meet his physical need. He meets his spiritual need. He starts with what's most important. You have to understand that in the Jewish culture, they would have a really strong understanding of the general influence of sin on the world. And they would think that all ailments and sicknesses were at some point a result of sin. And this man may have felt that it was because of his own personal sins that he's in the state that he's in. But nevertheless, Jesus meets his greatest need. 
Jesus meets his greatest need and offers forgiveness. He was sick with sin. He was dead in his trespasses and sins. He was uh, disabled most likely because of his sin and he knew that he needed to be right with God and therefore he desired to be made whole. And Jesus starts with his soul, which is far more important. How about you? Do you have an understanding that before God, you are sick with sin and that you have a sin problem and that if you died today without having Christ as your savior, that you would face his condemnation and that you would be separated from him forever in hell, but yet before the face of God, the Bible says, forever and ever and ever because of your sins. This man, the paralytic, understood that and he did not want that. He wanted to be made whole and Christ started with his soul first, which is most important. The second observation from this section that's so important is this, only the one sinned against can offer forgiveness. And that's why the Pharisees say what they say and the scribes and Pharisees begin to reason saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? You can see and taste the anger there towards Christ. Who could forgive sins but God alone? And that's true. Only God can forgive sins, but Jesus is God. And he demonstrates that. The paralytic had sinned against God. And the Pharisees understood that only God can forgive. And Jesus is making a point. I am God, therefore I can forgive. Only the one sinned against can offer forgiveness. I have a a comment here that I want to read. Here's a good way to illustrate that. If you offended me, then I can properly say I forgive you. But if you have offended others, it would be ridiculous for me to say I forgive you for offending all those other people too. I don't have that right. Picture the Rourke brothers. I can get in trouble here. This just came to me, so I apologize. You have Michael, the oldest boy, Andrew, the middle son, and then Jacob, okay, the last son, the youngest. Picture Michael is really annoyed with Andrew, and they're together, and Michael just starts punching Andrew on the shoulder, and Andrew is really upset about it. But Jacob, who's standing over here, looks to Michael and says, I forgive you. And then Michael just hits Andrew again, and now Andrew's like this. And Jacob looks over and says, I forgive you. That would make no sense. What is Jesus doing by saying, I forgive you? He's proclaiming to the Pharisees and to the crowd that I am God. This man has sinned against me. Therefore, I have the right to offer forgiveness to him. And Jesus grants forgiveness, guys, by grace through faith. It's by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own selves, but it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And grace means unmerited favor. You can't do anything to earn it. The paralytic had no ability to earn God's favor. He didn't try to clean himself up. He couldn't. He couldn't impress Jesus by trying to get up on crutches because he was not able. He didn't tell Jesus about his perfect record of attending the synagogue. He didn't do any of that, and Jesus granted forgiveness to him. 
The only condition, condition that's mentioned is that Jesus saw their faith. And whose faith did Jesus see? He saw the four friends and he saw the paralytics. One commentator says this, as Abraham's intercession delivered Lot, as Paul in the shipwreck was the occasion of safety for all the crew, so one man's faith may bring about blessings on another. But if the sick man, the paralytic, had no faith, he would not have let himself be brought at all and would certainly not have consented to reach Christ's presence. Like the paralytic, lost people like you and I can do nothing in and of themselves to be saved. You cannot even believe apart from God since faith is a gift as well. Yet you are called to believe. Just as here, Jesus commands the paralytic to do something impossible. He says, Raise, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And even so, he commands sinners to repent and believe. Since salvation is totally of God, including faith to believe, he will get all the glory. He will get all the glory. So it seems confusing. It seems as though faith is a work here. And I just think it simply means this. These men had their eyes on Jesus and they wanted to be right with God if they weren't yet. And they went to Jesus and Jesus forgave them. It was all about Jesus, not about them. And so that's an amazing part of the story. And let's wrap this thing up. Let's look at the nature of Christ's forgiveness towards the paralytic. Number one, we see that it's immediate. Jesus says to the man, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And just like his immediate healing, which takes place a little bit later, this man's forgiveness came to him immediately with a word. And that's exactly what happens to you and I as sinners when we confess our sins and we go before the Lord and we say, Lord, forgive me, save me. Psalm 103.8, which was read earlier, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and ready to forgive. Micah 7, verse 18, God delights to show mercy. I don't know how the happiest being in the universe can add to his delight, but it, somehow he does by offering mercy to enemies of his. 1 John 1, 9, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us right on the spot. The second we confess it, he offers forgiveness no matter what we have done. He will wash us clean and make us new. And that forgiveness is free. It can't be earned. It's a gift that is given to you. And this is a gift to the paralytic because you know what? He's going to die for the paralytic. He's going to absorb the sins of the paralytic on himself when he's on the cross. And looking back, the Bible says that if you put your faith in the work and the person and work of Christ, he will absorb your sin and you will get his righteousness. And it's as simple as a word. Forgive me. Save me. And God will do that. And that's the nature of his forgiveness. It's total and complete. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions, no matter how awful they are. Psalm 51, seven, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Some of you are carrying the guilt of your sin today and you know that you're filthy, but you can be made whole, washed and clean before the God of the universe and be in his presence forever in heaven if you would just turn and go to him. Hebrews 8, 12, 
I will forgive their iniquities and remember them no more. The omniscient one can somehow remove sins and not remember them. In Micah 7, 18 and 19, God will cast all our sins into the bottom of the sea. My buddy, Cameron, he's not here today. He's been married for four months and we were at the beach the other night and he took a big wave right into the shore and somehow caught his hand on a rock and his new wedding ring came off. And we're on the shore and we're down there and all of us, as soon as the wave would go down, we're like, before the other wave came back and then we're running back. The Bible says when God casts and forgives our sins, he throws it into the sea, the depths of the sea, to where it's never, ever, ever coming back up. And that's the forgiveness that's offered today through Christ. Let's wrap this up as I just got lost in my notes here. Let's finish this up. So notice, notice the difference between the five men who have faith and their desperate desire to get to Christ and then the Pharisees who are in Christ's presence and they are despising it and they see him as a blasphemer. They can't stand his fame and his power. So in one sense, the love of Christ is drawing the poor, the humble, the brokenhearted and at the same time, it's repelling the prideful, the religious prideful people and, and it's just amazing. Which one are you? Are you more like the Pharisee and you despise Christ and you want nothing to do with him? Or are you like the five and the paralytic that come before God just begging to be made right? How is your attitude and your heart towards the Lord and towards others? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, Jesus, because he's God, is omniscient and knows the hearts of the Pharisees. He knows the reasoning, this, these ideas of blasphemy within them. And Jesus, aware of the reasoning, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you or rise up and walk? And here's our purpose statement. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he looked at the paralytic and said, I say to you, rise and take up your stretcher and go home. And that's what happened. This man was healed on the spot, physically, made whole. His bones strengthened. His muscles were infused with, with strength, enough to where he could just immediately pick up his mat and go home. And this is a true story. This actually happened. Jesus Christ has the power to forgive because he had the power to heal people. And he demonstrated who he was by his power. And that's the point of this section here. He healed the paralytic and therefore he can heal your sin sick soul and give you forgiveness. It's amazing. And the Bible says that this man went away glorifying God. And not only was he glorifying God, but the Bible says that all who were there, not the Pharisees, but all the rest of the crowd were seized with amazement. It was almost like amazement came up and just grabbed them and just said, is this not incredible? And they all started to glorify God and they were filled with awe. So there was this amazement and this like this holy fear, not of dread, like God's going to punish us, but like, man, this is incredible. He is who he says he is. He 
he is the son of God. And it said, they said, they end the whole thing with, we have, ex- we have seen extraordinary things today. And my question to you is, believer, is forgiveness kind of an old idea? Or is it fresh and new? Can you walk out of here, no matter what's going on in, in the world, and just between you and God, just say, Lord, I am just so thankful. I am just so amazed that you would love me, the worst sinner in this room, an enemy of you, and yet you would shed your love on me and die for me. And just be amazed and be in awe and then just worship. That should be our hearts. That was the heart of the man who was healed. Not only was he healed physically, but his soul was healed. He was forgiven, which is the greatest need that's met. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, has your greatest need been met? Obviously not. You need to turn from your sins and you need to cry out to the only one who can save you, this God-man, Jesus Christ, who is the most amazing man who ever have walked on this planet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be reminded of many things here. Number one, that you are God and that you came and took on flesh and lived a holy, perfect life, upholding and keeping the law perfectly so that we sinners, when we repent, we could get and receive your righteousness. And Lord, I thank you too that you went to the cross and absorbed the wrath of your Father and you took on our sin and, be, and paid the penalty for our sin. We have our sin removed forever because of the work that you did on the cross if we put our faith in you. And it's all true because you rose from the dead. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're a God that loves us. We thank you that you're a God, a God that delights to show mercy and that your forgiveness is free no matter what we've done. We can, we can know your forgiveness. Thank you for that. I pray, Lord, for anybody here that does not know you, that they would turn to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.